<clears throat> well, we're in a Conversations with Jesus sermon series where we're walking through uh, several selections from the Gospels highlighting the love of God for sufferers and sinners. You know, as Christians, we are saints and we are sinners and we are sufferers. It's important to have all three of those categories in our minds. And as we come to our Father, how does he receive us? And what we find this morning is that we have a Father who loves us, that the gospel is for the lost. And how you understand this section to be a conversation, uh, we just read this one part where Jesus tells a story. You have to go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, where it says that Jesus had gathered around him both the Pharisees and also tax collectors and sinners. And so you have these two distinct groups of people who are there with Jesus listening to what Jesus says. And Jesus uh, tells a series of three parables. We're reading the last of the three. All three of these parables have to do with things that are lost. The first parable has to do with the sheep that is lost. And Jesus goes after the one. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The next parable has to do with a coin that is lost. Out of 10 coins, one is lost. And so a woman searches night and day until she finds the coin, and now we have a parable of two sons that are lost. Now, maybe you grew up and you heard this to be the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, in the ESV, it's listed as being that parable, and it is the parable of the prodigal son, but the better way to describe this parable is to say that it is the parable of the two sons, the two lost sons. There are two sons, in fact, that are lost And that's how Jesus begins the parable. He says, a father had two sons. And Jesus' point is very much to make this and say to his audience who is there, both the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners, that there are two ways to be lost from the father. Two ways, not one, two. There are two ways to be lost. The father initiates and he loves in both situations but he wants the Pharisees in particular to understand that there are two ways to be lost. And he wants the, those who are gathered around him who would be called sinners in that day and who were in fact sinners to know that they can be lost and found as well. And so we jump into this parable and we learn about these ways that we can be estranged from and also restored to a loving relationship with the Father So we start out where Jesus does with the first way to be lost, which is the younger son's rebellion in verses 11 through 16. Now, this is the most obvious way that you can be lost from the father. Everyone would have understood that this son indeed is lost. And the problem begins for the younger son in verse 12 when he asked to receive a portion of his inheritance from his father so he can leave the family. He says, give me my inheritance. Now, in that day, this would be like saying, Father, I wish you were dead. You didn't get your inheritance till your father died. So the son is saying, I, I basically wish you were dead, dad, and I want my share of the estate now. This is the utmost contempt. He must have had hatred in his heart growing for his father for years. This would have been one of the worst things that you could have ever done in this society to dishonor your father in this way. And so he took about a third of the wealth. Being the younger brother, the elder brother would have been entitled to about two-thirds upon the death of the father. And so 
Indeed, the father gives the son a third of his wealth. So this son was lost before he ever left the father. Before he ever left the father, his heart had already turned away in rebellion and gratitude and selfishness. So the story escalates. The younger son leaves home. It says he gathered all he had, which basically in the Greek means to take one's money and turn it into cash. So he took all the assets that the father gave him, he liquidated them and turned it all into cash so he could go and he could travel. He felt like in order to experience life and find the fulfillment he was looking for, he had to run away from his father, run away from his family, run away from tradition, run away from the community of faith. That is where he would find fulfillment and joy and freedom. It had to be found out there somewhere because it certainly wasn't here where he had grown up, or so he thought. And so he wanted what the father could give him, but he did not want the father himself. He wanted what the father could give him, but he did not want the father himself. And this is the definition of lostness, that he would run from his father, run away from God. This is the definition of sin. And so now this son, who has been running away from his father internally for years, he cashes in all of his chips and he says, I'm done with you, dad. I'm done with this family. I'm going to do life on my own. So the story further escalates. He had squandered all he had in wild living. Wild living means immoral living with a connotation of luxury. In a word, he was prodigal. He was extravagant and wasteful to the extreme. Now, anyone in that day who's listening would have identified this son as being among the greatest of sinners. Anyone that would do this to his father, anyone who would go and live this way, squandering all of this wealth in wild, immoral living. These are the worst character qualities uh, for a responsible religious person. The Pharisees would have loathed, this person would have represented the, the very person the Pharisees would have loathed the most, disparaging his father, irresponsible use of money. Now he is dependent on a godless Gentile. So he's run out of money. He's squandered it all in terrible living. Now he's dependent on a godless Gentile. Not only that, this Gentile raises pigs, which is just totally despicable in the Jewish community. He's feeding the pigs. He's with the pigs. And it's even worse. He even wishes that he had the food of the pigs. This is the lowest of low. Jesus is saying this son has reached the utter point of destitution to where he becomes desperate and is starving. And if it wasn't bad enough, not long after that, a famine hits the land and he began to be in need. So this son is lost, Jesus is saying, utterly, totally, and completely lost. And it's in this moment, and maybe you've been there, where it says that he came to his senses, or in the ESV it says he came to himself. Now how? How did he come to himself? Well, there's this implication that's, that God acted on the outside of him. He didn't just have a personal epiphany. God acted on him in this moment, and he came to his senses, and he said to himself, my father, even his servants have far more than me. Maybe I can go back home. He was utterly destitute. He had ruined himself. And he got to the point where he realized that life wasn't found outside of the Father. It was found where the Father 
was, and here we see the marks of true repentance. One is he owns his sin. He admits he's sinned against the Father, and he's sinned against God. He is humble. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he had no illusion of being able to provide for himself. You know, the Beatitudes, the first one, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who are not just poor, but they can kind of make it on their own. It's the poor, but they realize that spiritually they are utterly desperate. They are out of answers. They have none. And they are wholly dependent on God for mercy. And so we see true repentance, but in some ways we also see in the Son flawed repentance, which is also part of our lives as well. We're a mixed bag. His motive really was he needed something to eat. He needed something from the Father. He needed something to eat. Not necessarily because he loved the Father so much. He was driven to the brink, and he needed God to give him something. And he also still feels he has the need to work for the Father when he goes back. He believes that the only way the Father would take him back is if he works for the Father to receive that handout. And so he still, even as he returns, is confused about the love of his Father. He still does not know the love of the Father when he reaches home. He is still lost even when he is walking down the road back home. So that's the first point. You have the son, the younger son, he is lost through rebellion. The second point is the only way to be found. The only way to be found. The only way to be found is receiving the Father's love. Receiving the Father's love. So first of all, let's talk about the loss of the Father. Let's let's focus on this is our Father in heaven. This is a picture of our Father in heaven. The loss of the Father. The loss of the Father is not just financial, but it is personal. He endures the painful, embarrassing rejection of his own son, which in that day and age would have been unheard of to be treated this way by your son. It was costly to let his son go, but how costly was it for the father to continue to love the son when he was gone? The whole time he loves the son, that was costly. It would have been much easier just to like cut him off and, and act like he were dead and, and try to erase him from his memory, but he didn't do that. He loved the son even while he was away. He went on loving him. He eventually could have given up on his son as being dead, but he did not do that. He receives no compensation for his loss of face. Now, if you think about in an, in an, in an Asian country or in the ancient Near East, when you return home, especially if you had been given a third of the wealth of the family, The expectation would have been that you would have returned home, not penniless, not destitute, but bringing gifts, bringing gifts to the father. The son comes home with utterly nothing, beyond nothing. He needs more help. He needs more cash. He needs more investment, more love from the father. And yet the father still loves him, even though the son has nothing, beyond nothing to give back. He has negative equity to give back to the father. The typical response would have been from his father and from the community to hate the son. You know, potentially, actually, what could have happened in this situation is that the the son could have been stoned. He could have been so utterly rejected by the society. In fact, in the elder brother, you can see the type of normal rage that would exist 
for someone who was so irresponsible and so um, dismissive and hateful of the father. There was a danger of him being cut, cut off from the community forever. But in the face of such great loss, we see even greater love from the father. Let's talk about the love of the father in the face of the loss. First of all, we find a love that initiates. It's a love that takes the initiative. The father is not passive. He's not waiting for the son to get all the way back home to say the right things, to have something to give him. Not at all. He's running toward the son. He is moving toward the son. He's going out to him on the road. For a father, an elderly man in this day and age to run would have been unusual, would have been very unusual, but he doesn't care. In fact, the word that's used here for running is, is a word reserved for foot races in the Greek. The father is not just jogging. He's not just kind of like ambling along. He's literally running toward the son to get to where he is. Why did he sprint? This is an interesting thought. Well, it's because he loved the son, but it might be because he knew if he didn't get to the son first, if the elder brother got there first, or the others like the elder brother, he might not have been able to see his son restored. Someone else could have gotten to him first, and that would have been a bad situation. The father controlled the future of the son. He had to get there first. So he takes the initiative. Second of all, we find a love that embraces. He embraces the son. The welcome back is not based on prior performance. It's based on the love of the father generated from his heart. It's not based on a promise to do it better and get it better next time. And he starts kissing the son. And the word here for kiss is, is a word that's put in the intensive in the original languages, meaning that he lavished his son with kisses. He was so excited to see his son. We see in this that it's not our repentance that saves us. It's only the mercy and grace and love of the Father. We see that the Father's love for the Son precedes the repentance of the Son. The Father's love takes the initiative and leads to the real repentance of the Son. Now the Son finally gives the kind of repentance Jesus is talking about in the triple parable of, of how you get rescued from being lost. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am unworthy to be your son. But in this repentance, which is real, he really embraces, he's right. He's right. He does not deserve to be a son. He has wasted everything. And he owns it. He owns it. And in this moment, he finds grace. So it's a love that embraces, it's a love that takes initiative, it's also a love that restores, a love that restores. All of these gifts the Father gives the Son signify sonship, which is full restoration to the family. So what do these gifts mean? The best robe, he brings the best robe, puts it on the Son. This is a full restoration to position in the family. He is clothed in the righteousness of the Father, he is clothed. He's, he goes from rags to, to riches. He goes from rags to righteousness as, as the robe is put on him. He's given a ring. Whoever has the ring of the father has control of the estate. This is, this is crazy. I mean, this guy just got back, and he's done everything wrong, and yet he's given a ring signifying that when he is present, he speaks for the father 
wow. The shoes, he's given shoes. He's come back with no shoes. And so he's no longer a slave or a servant. He was a son. It's a love that fully restores. And finally, it's a love that rejoices. The father makes a public declaration, which is likely the greatest gift of all, when he says, this son of mine. This son of mine means he's not going to get stoned because the father loves him, and he's now a son. He's a son of one of the most wealthy guys in the area. You can't kill him. In fact, he is now speaking for me, the father says. He is my son. And he killed the fatted calf, the fatted calf. It says it twice. So apparently, um, you know, they had, he was a wealthy guy. He had all of these steers he was raising. And there was one, uh, there was one calf that he had been waiting for a special occasion, the fatted calf, and he, he kills it in this moment to celebrate that the son is restored to, to table fellowship. So anyone, let's talk about it for us, anyone who experiences salvation has to go through the same process as the son. You have to come to God aware, deeply aware of your son, acknowledging your desperate need for God's grace. Your desperate need. You can't help yourself. You're not poor, but you're kind of making it. You're poor spiritually, but you actually don't have any answers. That's how you come to the Lord. But while you come to him, as you come to the Lord, he runs to you, and he meets you, and he initiates with you, and he embraces you, and he restores you, and he rejoices over you. I heard a sermon one time where the whole focus of this this brother's sermon it was Thabiti Anwabile. He was saying that at the end of every one of this triple parable, the theme is joy. You have the shepherd who rejoices when he finds the sheep. You have the woman who rejoices when she finds the coin. And you have the father who rejoices when he finds the son. We have a God of joy. God doesn't just receive you back and he's like, you know what? Fine. You've kind of messed everything up, but I guess you can come back because I'm a God of grace. That is not it. You have a God who, once he restores you, he throws a celebration. He parties over you. It says the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents here in, in Luke 15. One sinner, every time a sinner repents, every time you repent, the angels in heaven are, are celebrating. Why? Because the angels have been watching God for eternity. They have been shaped by the character of God. They know that God rejoices when sinners repent, and so they rejoice. It's their job to rejoice because God rejoices, and they serve God. And so we have a God who is great, who is a God of grace. There is one way to be restored is grace alone, but once you receive that grace, you are fully embraced back into the family of God. And so we have the son, the younger son, is fully restored. But in this episode, though it is concluded, the story is not over because there are two sons who are lost. There's not just one, there are two. And now we need to get to the story of the second brother. There's a second way to be lost. The elder brother is lost in self-righteousness. He's lost in self-righteousness. Now this is a subtle and less typical view of how to be lost. But it's equally dangerous, I would say even more dangerous, because the self-righteous person rarely can see himself or herself and how desperate they are for grace. 
So let's go back to the big picture. So Jesus is talking to who? He's talking to, you have Pharisees and you have tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees have been criticizing Jesus for spending his time with the quote-unquote sinners, looking down on Jesus for partying with and having friendships with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus is telling this parable, and he's targeting the Pharisees. And he's saying there are two ways to be lost. Let me tell you about the second way. And he brilliantly finishes the parable with the story of the elder brother. So the problem with the elder brother begins because the elder brother will not celebrate. He will not celebrate. When the younger son comes home, the brother is, as usual, working in the field. And so, interestingly, he calls one of his servants to ask the servant what's going on. This signifies a disconnect with the father. He could have easily asked the father himself, but he's, he's running through channels. He's asking his servants to go to his father on his behalf. Why not ask him himself? So the servant rightly reminds him of what's going on here. They were celebrating his brother's return, that he was dead, and now he's alive, that he's lost, and he's found. So what the elder brothers should do next is completely obvious to any listener who was there. Any listener, including the Pharisees, would have known what you're supposed to do in that situation. If you're an honorable son, if you're really an honorable son, and you really love the Father, if you're really faithful, then you go to the party. You get yourself to the party, and you honor your father. You honor your father, and you love your brother who has been restored. But he instead did not do that at all. Instead, in verse 28, it says he was filled with anger and rage and stayed outside the party. This word communicates explosive rage. He fails to do what is right both outwardly and inwardly. He thinks he's got it so right, but he's really deeply wrong. He fails to do what is right both outwardly and inwardly. And he's totally unaware of his sinfulness in this moment. The elder brother was self-deceived. One quality of being self-deceived or uh, self-righteous is that you often can't see yourself, but other people can see you. And so we can see the elder brother and what's really going on with him, but he can't see himself. And he is totally angry. Even though he was with the father or proximate to the father, he doesn't know the love of the Father. He doesn't know the Father. And that is the thing about self-righteousness. If you're an elder brother, you cannot see yourself clearly until a crisis hits you and reveals you are weak in some way or you fail. You're in that place of neediness, and then God engages with you. Self-righteous people can only be um, seen through and experience grace if they're broken, and often that brokenness extremely painful. It's painful because it is painful, and it's also painful because your perception of yourself and how strong you are gets shattered, and and you love that perception of yourself. You've gotten to where you are in life, you think, uh, because of your perception of how you have it all together. So the father, he does the same thing with the elder brother as he does with the younger brother. He takes the initiative. He goes out to him. He goes outside the party. 
the father leaving the party, I mean, it just would never happen in the ancient Near East. You don't, as, as the one throwing the party, as the one with all the wealth and all the power, you don't go outside of your own party. You don't go outside your own party for your son who's throwing a pity party, an angry pity party. You don't do that. But that's what the father does. That's what he has to do. That's what he wants to do because he loves the son. And so he takes the initiative, and the tension escalates as the father humbles himself, leaves the party, goes out to the elder brother. And the crisis happens when the elder brother explodes again in anger on the father. Now the elder brother is out of control for once. He's been such under control. He's got it. He's had it all together. But he's been raging, and finally he breaks, and he explodes on the father, and he reveals some of the deep secrets of his heart. And he says here at the height of his anger when his guard is down, he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, and you never even gave me as much as a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But now the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. <laughs> Let's break this down for a second. Let's break down what's going on in his heart. Look, he's angry antagonistic, disrespectful, not loving to the Father. All these years I've slaved for you and never disobeyed your orders. The, the elder brother and self-righteous people, they, they keep score. They have like an internal scorecard. And I know because I'm one of these kind of people, you have an, you have an internal scorecard where you're, you're constantly trying to, to compare yourself and level up against other people. And you, you just kind of have a way of dismissing your own weaknesses and accentuating other people's weaknesses so that you kind of end up on top and you can look down on other people. And the, the elder brother had been living like this for years. And he's been keeping score. He's been keeping a record of his time and effort comparison to the younger brother's uh, obvious failings. He says, to celebrate with my friends, he doesn't really want to rejoice with the father. He doesn't want to be with his father. He wants to do the same thing that the younger brother did. He wants to use the father's money and wealth to have a party with all of his friends. And he's mad because the younger brother got to do it, and he didn't. Because he, uh, he's too responsible, and yet he wants the same thing the younger brother got in this situation. This son of yours, was he not also a son? Was he, this, this son who came back, was he not also his brother? He reveals the hatred in his heart. Squandering your property, again, he's keeping score. The older son is fixated on the idea that he has not received a just reward for his works. He is in a worked, I work for you and you give me what I deserve. That is his paradigm. He has not yet understood ever in his life to this point what grace is. He's never experienced the joy of getting something that you utterly don't deserve, which is grace. And so it's not surprising that he then would not extend grace to his brother because you can't give something to someone else that you've never understood and received for yourself. If you are a self-righteous person and you're in a works-based orientation with God, yeah, you don't like grace. It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to you because you're so busy trying to get what you feel like you deserve from God. But what, what Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees and the self-righteous in this moment is that you, too, are in just as desperate need of grace as the younger brother. 
the anger that's raging in your heart, the way that you look down on other people, the way that you don't celebrate the things that the Father celebrates, the, the way that you really want to, as we talked about in our confession a little bit, you, you have a way of, of kind of using God to give you things that you really want instead of God himself. And, and Jesus says the reality is that the self-righteous are just as separated from God as the rebellious. This brother had never owned the depth of his sinfulness. He had never experienced grace, and so he couldn't give grace away to other people. The resolution of this story with the elder brother is that there is no resolution. There is no resolution. And really, Jesus, what he's, what he's wanting the Pharisees to do and what he's wanting us to do is to insert ourselves into the story and ask ourselves the question, how will we finish the story? How will we finish the story? Will our story finish like the younger brother or like the elder brother? Will we be angry and remain estranged from God? There are, just there are two sons. There are two ways to respond to the father. There's the way of the elder brother, which is being angry and estranged from grace, and yet being close to the father, going to church, maybe tithing, you know, doing a lot of things so that God might bless you. That's one way of responding, but yet you've never received God's grace. Or you could respond like the younger brother, and you could say, God, I am desperate for your mercy. I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know, I, I know of all of these things that I've done that are wrong. I know. I know them. And I, I own them. And I come to you with no strings attached and say, God, I need your grace. I need your grace, God. That's two ways of responding to this lavish love of God. God is the same in, the, in both parables, he's the same. He takes initiative. He, he loves. He longs to embrace. He longs to restore. He longs to party uh, with you. But the response really is up to you. The response is up to you and how you respond to his grace and his mercy. You know, ultimately, this is just this is a nice and amazing story uh, that Jesus tells. Brilliant um, but the ultimate way that Jesus shows his love for us is not telling really compelling stories. He's an, the best storyteller that ever lived. He could nail you with a story. But he did more than that. He, in the middle of the great story, the story of all of our lives, the story of our real and total desperation and need for grace, what did he do? He took the initiative. He went to the cross. He went to the cross and he there he expressed, I love you. For anyone who returns to me, I will forgive you. I will embrace you. I will restore you fully. I will put that robe on, on you, that robe of righteousness. I will give you that ring, that ring of being in the family. Not because you've done anything or will do anything, simply because of my grace. I will give you those shoes, showing that you're not a slave, you are a son. I will throw a party for you here. I will throw a party I, and Jesus does it. How does he do it? He does it by going to the cross, and, and he actually makes that grace available for the world so that anyone who trusts in him, anyone who believes in him, can receive that grace from God. Whether you're self-righteous or you're rebellious, or I would suggest, as I've seen in my own life, I am both. I am both sons. You catch me on one day, I'm the younger. You catch me on another day, even a moment-by-moment moment thing. 
Okay, I'm both sons. <laughs> and so maybe you are too. The reality is that's okay because Jesus went to the cross and because he broke through the empty tomb, he gives new real life to all who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in this moment. There's not a single one of us in this room that has not either been lost in the past or been found in our lostness. There's not one person here who has lived so righteously that they can say, I've not been lost. Some of us who are in the church and have been found um, find ourselves lost again. Um, we, we're on the estate of uh, the kingdom of God, but it's been a long time since we've experienced the love of God in our souls in a fresh way. And so I pray, God, right now that you would pour out your grace on us, that we would see you, Lord Jesus. We would see you as the one who, as the, the very heart of the Father, the very greatest expression of the Father, you were sent from the Father for the world. You went to the cross, demonstrating on the cross this great love of the Father this great love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit poured out for us. Lord God, I pray that not a single person here would leave without receiving this free gift of grace that came at your great expense but at our, and our great gain. I pray if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in Christ, whether they would consider themselves to be an elder brother, younger brother, elder sister, younger sister, um, I pray that this would be the day of salvation. And I pray for anyone here who um, has been with you for a long time uh, but has not really experienced your love and your forgiveness, would you break through and remind us of how great the Father's love really is for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord.